Miami Book Fair has their street fair next weekend on and on Saturday afternoon. Jim Kirschlin and Kirsten Hines will be there with their new book, part of the Images of America series called Everglades National Park. And I'm in the studio with Jim and Kirsten, and welcome to WLRN. Thank you. So I'll start with you, Jim. When did the idea of this book start? Well, this is the third book that we've done on the history of national parks in South Florida, Biscayne National Park and Dry Tortugas. And in this case, it was timely because this is the 75th anniversary of the dedication of Everglades National Park. So the park encouraged us to put this book together as part of their celebration of their anniversary. And what are your roles in the book, Kirsten? What did you do for the book? (laughs) So I am a photographer, and so my job was to go digging through the archives to find historic pictures to illustrate the story. Um, And Jim is the historian, so he writes the storyline, and then I take it and try and find pictures that will bring that story to life. It's primarily a picture book. It is a picture book. The nice thing about it is if you read the introduction, you get the full story. If you read each chapter, you get a little bit more detail. And then if you just browse through, the pictures themselves tell the story. And then if you read the captions, you get really a lot of depth of information. It is quite fascinating because you could pick it up and read anywhere. Absolutely. And get a history that I'm not familiar with. Were there pictures you didn't use? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and some of my favorites actually didn't make it into the book because they were they were great. But you have to choose, you know, the ones that are going to tell the story the best. And, you know, sometimes we get into a little bit of a, but this is a better picture. And he's like, but this one tells the story better. <laughs> so so there's always negotiating and, you know, there's a limited number you can put in. So we 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 do have to leave a bunch of them out. So if you were the photographer, Jim, you were the historian. Yes, amateur. But also, uh, yes, so we start off, um, what are are the stories that we want to tell uh, that encapsulate the history of the Everglades and Everglades National Park? And we write the storyline first and then go find the archival images to match. And that's the hard way to do it. Uh, But we really want to tell the story. And I've learned how to write in 72-word bits because that's what the captions are. The captions of pictures. (laughs) It is a fascinating history. Uh, You mentioned it's celebrating, the Everglades National Park is celebrating their 75th anniversary, but the park is much older than that. When When did it first become inhabited? Well, that's a fascinating story, and I'm glad you asked the question. One of the results of our research was to appreciate uh, the indigenous people of South Florida. Uh, We kind of knew the facts, but really didn't understand. Uh, So we know about the Miami Circle, uh, the uh, sighting, mm, the the site uh, that was a uh, ceremonial site for pre-Tecesta, 2,000 years old. Uh, Down in Cutler, there's a site with human remains that are 10,000 years old. So humans have been in South Florida for over 10,000 years. The Everglades is only 5,000 years old. So the humans were here, people were here in what would become the Everglades 5,000 years before the Everglades was even here. The Everglades evolved with people. In the book you say the Everglades is no more. What do you mean by that? The Everglades once stretched 50 miles wide, 100 miles long from Lake Okeechobee to Florida Bay and the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, that Everglades flowed freely without serious interruption by, by humans. That Everglades doesn't exist anymore. 
Half of it has been drained and developed. If you look at an aerial image of South Florida, you'll see the entirety of the East Coast is developed with people, six million people along the East Coast. Nearly all of that is on former Everglades that has been drained. Now, the Everglades that does exist is half of what it started off as, and it's still a fascinating, fascinating place. And that Everglades will continue because it's all under some kind of protective management. Why, 75 years ago, did they protect it? The story starts with uh, egrets, herons that have fancy plumes. And they were uh, hunted, and plumes were used for uh, ladies' hats. And there was a warden who was murdered, and that became a national cause for anti-egrets. Uh, legislation, and that was the initiation of the the nation's interest in the Everglades as an environment. And then that was followed by uh, interest in a particular hammock, tropical hammock. Uh, a hammock being a, a dry piece of land. A dry piece of land, and specifically it's a tropical forest that's on that upland where it's drier. So this particular one was called Paradise Key in the middle of Taylor Slough. So when you first drive into Everglades National Park now, the first bridge you cross is going over Taylor Slough. And so in the middle of that was this forest, tropical forest, and it was characterized by royal palms, which are these beautiful palms. They have them in Cuba as well, but they really weren't known from very many places in South Florida. And so this was a really special place, and they were getting ready to put highway through it to get down to Flamingo, where there was a community of people living. And so Mary Monroe Barr lived in Coconut Grove, and she was an environmentalist, and she got word of this, and she had heard about this hammock because botanists had told her how spectacular it was. And so she decided that this was not okay to ruin this beautiful, special forest. And so she teamed up with Mae Jennings, who was the former governor's wife and wonderful politician in her own right as well. Um, and they got the all of the women's clubs of Florida on board, and they really fought to make that particular hammock into a park. And so it was eventually approved as Royal Palm State Park. And that actually is now, if you go now to Anhinga Trail, the Royal Palm Hammock hike is still through that there. So that hammock is still there intact. And they protected it, and the Women's Clubs of Florida maintained it for 30 years. And that ended up being the first part of Everglades National Park. So that was the original park. Um, and then it became extended later. And you have pictures of this in the book. Absolutely. Who took all these pictures? Oh, Gosh, I'm not sure who took them, <laughs> um, but they are in different archives. So History Miami has a wonderful archive. The park has a wonderful archive that is really got a lot of amazing pictures. Um, some of them are at universities, University of Miami, University of Florida. Uh, Florida State has its own archives online, Florida Memory. Um, so a lot of these pictures came from there. And actually, one of my, my favorites in the book, what is from that dedication of Royal Palm Hammock? And, you know, you don't... I was. You see pictures. One of the pictures is they were trying to get into this hammock, and so they put down boards and had you know the Model T trying to go across Taylor Slough in in the floods, and it's just this little tiny car, right? And so you think, gosh, nobody could have gotten there, right? But then they show the dedication, and you're looking at this crowd of hundreds of people, like that would have been out in the middle of nowhere. I mean, there would have been it would have been very challenging to get there. I guess the road had already been developed at that point, but it was kind of astounding because I kept thinking about it as, oh, it's just going to be this little tiny dedication with just a handful of people, but there was quite a crowd there. 
I'm speaking in the studio with Kirsten Hines and Jim Cushlin, whose new book, Everglades National Park, is a part of the Book Fair International at the at the Miami-Dade College next weekend. Uh, Jim, you mentioned in passing about the plume hunters, and the fellow who was murdered was Guy Bradley. That's correct. And he was a park ranger? He was uh, a warden. He was being paid for by the Audubon Society and was also deputized as a state state warden. But it was really a, a private uh, uh, wardenship of the bird rookeries. These, these birds come together to roost, and that's where the hunters would go in and kill them to get their plumes. At the time, when the birds flew, it would just turn the sky black. There was certainly a, a huge number. We don't know how many, but there were certainly huge numbers of, of wading birds, heron storks, ibises, uh, spoonbills that inhabited South Florida at that time. And the plume hunting was so dramatic that it seriously reduced the number of these species, uh, sending reddish egrets, for example, to extinction in South Florida. The plumes used for ladies' hats? Lovely, yes. One <laughs> <laughs> of the things Mary Monroe would do uh, in Coconut Grove was to, and in Miami, was to go through town, and if some lady was wearing a hat with feathers, she'd tear it off her head and stomp it in the ground. No. That, well, that's great, actually, because it saved a lot of birds. Well, we, we consider Mary Monroe to be the founder of conservation in South Florida. Mm-hmm. And the Everglades uh, becoming a national park, that helped to save the birds. Oh, absolutely. So Everglades National Park protection was always first about the birds. Uh, if you look at the boundaries of the park, it included Florida Bay and the West Coast that where the bird workeries were. But in the time that Royal Palm Hammock was being managed by the Women's Club, three decades, another force became uh, involved with the issue of the Everglades, and this was led by a man called Ernest Coe, who lived in Coconut Grove. And over this period of time, he just mobilized everybody, yes, to protect the birds, but also to protect the the environment and the Everglades and uh, the tropical hammocks, and he was a force to be reckoned with. In 1930s, the park was approved by the federal government, but World War II and such intervened, and it was dedicated in 1947. Speaking of war, the Seminoles recently ended that war. They, we were at war with the Indians when this was all going on. The Indians had uh, decided that they hadn't given up, yes. <laughs> so the Native folks adapted to the uh, Everglades, obviously. It almost makes it me feel like it's a good thing there were mosquitoes because it kept the population down. Uh, mosquitoes were a, a very important element in the development of South Florida, that and air conditioning. Yes. The story of Native Americans is fascinating. The uh, indigenous people who were here when the Spanish first arrived died out over the 200 years, 300 years of, of Spanish colonization. Uh, But the uh, wars of removal by the United States government to force the Seminoles in Florida to Oklahoma, uh, which went on for 40 years, pushed these people further and further south, and those that did not immigrate uh, ended up in the Big Cypress Swamp and the Everglades. And these were not a, a wetland people, but they totally adopted to living on the tree islands in small family groups and survived there for 30, 40 years before coming back out to engage the, the American communities that developed on the coast. Because, indeed, the American government tried to wipe out the indigenous people and move them out to that's Oklahoma. Ex- that's exactly right. And we don't know how many uh, persisted, probably in the order of less than 100. 
uh, and they settled in the Big Cypress and in the Everglades, and they became the Seminole tribes and the Miccosukee tribes. I'm talking Everglades today with author of the new book, Everglades National Park, Jim Kirschlin and Kirsten Hines, who will be at the book fair next Saturday afternoon at 12 o'clock talking about their new book. I was surprised by how much development there was in the Everglades. <coughs> a Flamingo Lodge? What was, what's that? <laughs> well, Flamingo is a fascinating place. It uh, started off as a place where people chopped buttonwood, made charcoal, and set it to Key West. And then it developed into a fishing village. When the Park Service took over, had about 40 people and about 35 structures. Uh, three of these places were owned, the fish houses. The rest were all kind of squatters. They were there. Um, and the Park Service had to figure out what to do about having a community of this sort of people, which they, you know, the government didn't necessarily appreciate, stuck right in the middle of a national park. Uh, eventually, they evicted everyone from, from Flamingo, bought out the several lands that were owned by, by the fish houses. And then they had to decide what the park had to decide what they were going to do in order to manage the, the, the place. And they decided to put their own southern headquarters then at Flamingo. And they came in, the Park Service came in and dredged and filled and created this big pad. And on it, it, it created all the visitor facilities that it thought it needed 60 miles from Homestead. And yes, that included a big hotel, Flamingo Lodge. And the Park Service didn't really want to put a lodge down in Flamingo. They expected people to come in and camp. But Leroy Collins was the governor at the time, and the state was about to turn over uh, quite a bit of land to the national park. And Collins made it clear that if the state was going to turn over the land, he wanted a hotel in Flamingo. You have, of course, pictures of all this. Absolutely. Uh, Flamingo Lodge is no longer there. The hurricanes have been pretty tough on the park, both the natural environment and the, the built environment. And there are pictures in there of what the hurricane damage has has done. And in fact, yes, after 40 years, hurricane wiped out uh, Flamingo Lodge. A new one is being built. Oh, really? Okay. Uh, but the role of hurricanes is absolutely fascinating, too. And it's something that the park has to adapt to. These hurricanes are going to happen. They're going to change the environment. They're going to knock down the structures you build. And that's just something we have to live with. And we need to understand that the Everglades is always changing. A hurricane comes through changes a, uh, a swamp into a marsh, and that's just the way it is. Everglades changes. I, I would think that the hurricane is not good for the human habitants, but for the Everglades itself, it would be a good thing. Uh, it, the last hurricane that came through uh, really scoured out Florida Bay, took out a, a bunch of detritus and, and organic material that was decreasing the oxygen in the bay. So yeah, it's a renewal. It's, it's part of the system. It, the system is adapted to, to hurricanes, and hurricanes renew it. I was going through finding historic pictures of the visitor center, and I kept looking at it, and I'm like, this doesn't look right. And finally it came clear that, in fact, yeah, that first visitor center had been taken out by a hurricane. And so what we see there now and think of as the visitor center is a new one. <laughs> the human impact on the Everglades obviously is immense, Tell me about the Malaluca and the Brazilian pepper. Those are both invasive exotic plants from elsewhere. Um, in fact, the Malaluca was brought in, uh, what's his name, remind me, 
John Gifford, uh, who lives in Coconut Grove, and he was a forester, and he actually thought that would help drain the Everglades. And so he actually intentionally planted it, and sure enough, it does drain the Everglades and has been very successful at that. And now we are fighting battles and putting all kinds of money into getting rid of it, which has been a bit of a nightmare. In terms of the Brazilian pepper, there is a part of the park that's called the Hole in the Donut. And what happened was the original boundaries that they wanted for Everglades National Park were really large, and they were very thoughtful. And they included all kinds of stuff. But in the end, it got whittled down when the park was finally approved, and any patch that might have economic value had been taken away. And one of those was the hole in the donut. And so that area got farmed. I mean, having pesticides and stuff in right by the national park wasn't a good thing. Um, and it also provided opportunity for poaching of wildlife. So eventually they realized they had to get rid of this. And so they ended up buying out that land later and incorporating it into the park. But because that soil had already been so disturbed, it made it opportune for invasive exotics to come in. And Brazilian pepper really took over in that spot. But this is another example of how resilient the system is. It, with human help, I must say, though, in this case, um, it was a really big effort to get rid of Brazilian pepper. And it took them a long time to figure out how to do it. But eventually, in fact, it's just happened in the last couple of years, they went in with bulldozers and scraped back down to the rock and got rid of all of that soil that had the seed bank for these pest plants. Um, and now if you go down Research Road, you can see that area that's now been recovered. Brazilian pepper is gone. The native plants are coming back and it's amazing. They can't do that with the Malaluca? Yeah, the Malaluca eradication also has been uh, successful. About 99% of the Malaluca has been uh, removed from the Everglades proper, the park and the uh, what's called the conservation areas to the north, and for a large part of the Big Cypress too, it's uh, it's it's hard. They have to go out and each tree uh, herbicide it, uh, but there's been tremendous success in getting rid of uh, Melaleuca. It used to cover acres upon acres upon acres. I, I well, growing up in South Florida, we used to refer them as the paper tree because you kind of peel off the bark. But I've remembered traveling up north and seeing just. As far as the eye can see, Malaluca. It was a perfect environment. It's a, an Australian tree that grows in swamps that burn periodically. That's what the paper bark's all about. That burns, and the tree doesn't burn. Mm -hmm. And meanwhile, when it burns, it releases years and years of seeds to be dispersed. It's a, a perfect invader for the Everglades. <laughs> I'm talking with Jim Kirschlin and Kirsten Hines about their new book, Everglades National Park. It's Every page has three or four pictures and it and it's just a joy to read i could just it's it so much stuff i didn't know well humans certainly did make their mark in the everglades i guess one of the most obvious ones is they cut off the water flow when did we realize that we were destroying the everglades little by little over a hundred years probably yeah. uh, the first tremendous insult to the southern everglades was tamiami trail took from the, about 1916 to about 1922, uh, 1926 actually, dug a canal, put up a levee, put a road on top, and that totally disrupted the water flow into the southern Everglades. Before that, the road going to, to Royal Palm Hammock had stopped the water flow going down Taylor Slough on the eastern side of the park. So those, those go back now 100 years in terms of their effect. And as soon as they went in, some people were beginning to understand that this was not the way it was supposed to be. But, you know, science was a whole lot more primitive then than it is now in terms of our understanding. But in 1947, ironically the same year that the park was uh, dedicated, 
uh, there was a big flood because we had hurricanes and a very wet, wet season. And all this eastern Everglades uh, that had been drained flooded again. And so Congress came in and, and created the Water Management District, the Flood Control District, to take care of that. And this district started building what ends up being a 1,000 miles of levee surrounding the remaining Everglades north of the park. And in the early 60s, that levee was completed just north of Tamiami Trail. And that was in dry years, and all the water flow to the park was cut off. So in 1962 and three, the park dried burned. Artificial gator holes were being blasted to find water. And then a few years later, the wet season, wet years returned, and the park flooded. So by the early 60s, it was absolutely clear that something was wrong. It's amazing it's still there. <laughs> <laughs> well, as, as Kirsten said, it's resilient. And when you, you change the water flow, the environment changes along with it. And uh, there's always an Everglades. There's always going to be an Everglades, but depending on how the water is managed and other management practices in hurricanes will determine what the Everglades is going to be like. The big challenge, well, there's always challenges, but lately I've been reading a lot about pythons. <laughs> exactly what kind of impact do the pythons make on the Everglades? The mammals are disappearing. <laughs> and that's a bad thing. That's Yeah. I mean, we have a really special native um, mix of temperate and tropical animals. And so we have a lot of very unique animals, um, especially down here in South Florida where it is more tropical. Um, and the python, you know, it, this is exactly like its uh, habitat back in Asia. And so it has thrived. And, you know, it... It doesn't have, especially when it's an adult, it doesn't really have many predators. And so it's been able to just, and it's hard to track, right? So it's um, it's really taken over. And in places that it's been the longest, there really are no more mammals. So it's, it's really crashed our native population of mammals. What a scary image that is of just <laughs> having just a bunch of snakes in the Everglades. Do, do, do those hunts make an impact? Probably not. Uh, but you have to do something. So the Water Management District engages 50 people that they pay to go out hunting for, for uh, pythons. You have python roundups, and you're allowed to kill a python. I mean, if you have a, catch a python, you're supposed to kill it. Uh, so all of these things are help. help. Uh, there's research trying to find uh, approaches. Uh, yeah, uh, I actually got I, – um, I was an artist in residence at Big Cypress National Preserve, and I got to follow their python team, and they, they're – testing different methods to get out. I mean, most of the catching and hunting that's happening is happening along levees. And that's really limited, right? The Everglades is a vast area, and a lot of it is hard to access. And so they're looking at uh, what they were doing when I followed their team. Um, they had a female that was captive out in a, in a box, right? So she couldn't get away. But her pheromones were being released, and they were every day coming and checking the area and it was drawing male pythons in from far and wide and so they were researching to see could this be an effective tool if they put these females out as a sort of bait to lure in males that they could capture. That is uh, certainly one of the serious continuing uh, challenges in the Everglades 
and it is one of the factors that will change the Everglades uh, going forward. One of the new things that they're concerned about is the tegu, which is from Argentina, and it's an egg-eating lizard. And it's just starting to get into the Everglades now, and so they're concerned that that will be the next threat to those plume birds, right? Um, we're not hunting them anymore. We've recovered the habitat. Uh, but if these lizards get in there and eat the eggs, it could be as devastating to our wading bird populations as the pythons have been to our mammals. Jim and Kirsten, do you spend a lot of time in the Everglades? We do. <laughs> yeah, we're actually, both of us are biologists by training. Uh, Jim continues to be an active biologist. I'm now a writer and photographer full-time, but um, but still, of course, very engaged in, in uh, conservation and biology. But um, So this the angle on this, I mean, it was developed as a, a biological park, the national park was, which is kind of unique. It was special at the time. You know, you think of grand geysers and things, and that's what's being protected. But even in um, Truman's dedication speech, he talks about this being, you know, at the bottom of its watershed and it's, it's being protected for its biology. And so um, as biologists, we really tried to bring that perspective into this book. So yes, it's the history, but it's also very heavily like looking at the biology of the park and how it was impacted by that history. It was interesting. It was, it was formed as a biological park because I think of, you know, the Grand Canyon or Yellowstone, really beautiful vistas. Tell me how beautiful the Everglades is. <laughs> Well, it is very beautiful, but it's hard to tell when you're on ground level, right? Because what you're looking at looks, you know, if you park on the road side, often you're just looking at brown. It's hard to really gain perspective. And so one of the things the Park Service did when they first got in there was trying to make this accessible to visitors and trying to make it a place where they could appreciate what they're looking at. And so the tower at Shark Valley, for example, is a really good place to go up and look at the vastness of the system and get a better appreciation of what it is and actually I remember my dad came for the first time my dad's from Colorado and he was definitely like there's no mountains here this is not majestic like what is this uh, but after a week of me showing him around the Everglades and you know bringing him to the hammocks and the tree islands and 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 taking him up there to have a look at that he was like you know it it is special and it is beautiful it's subtle but it is spectacular in its own right do, do we get our fresh water from the Everglades Oh, definitely. The the water supply of Miami-Dade County comes almost entirely from the Everglades. The uh, water comes from, from wells. Wells go into what's called the aquifer, which is water sitting under the ground. And that aquifer is replenished by the water in the Everglades. There's really no distinction between the underground aquifer and the water sitting on top of the Everglades. So all the water that Miami-Dade County drinks and uses for whatever purposes, comes from the Everglades. Yeah, it's it's your water. Is there enough of it? <laughs> yes, there's quite a lot of water if it's managed <laughs> if it's managed appropriately to the south. Are we heading in the right direction now? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Uh, the Everglades is in the best shape that it's been in a hundred years. The new book is called Everglades National Park. Historian James A. Kirschland, uh, Jim Kirschland, and Kirsten Hines, who collected the photographs. How many photographs are in it? Did you count? I think there was close to 200. So interesting to look at all the pictures and the information in the book. Jim and Kirsten will be at Miami Book Fair International next Saturday at noon in downtown Miami at Miami-Dade College.